0: There is a phrase and a concept in, believe it or not, Greek philosophy that you are familiar with even if you're not familiar with it. How do you like that? It's called the Via Medea, the Middle Way. It was argued by Aristotle as far back as the 300s B.C. It became a a common phrase inside the Roman Empire. The idea is very simple. If you have two positions that are both extremes, neither one of them are true. The right way is the via media, the middle way. A third way, if you will. If you look at modern politics... You can see this frequently. It's often the thing that you're the most frustrated at when you're watching a politician on TV is the fact that they're taking the Via Medea. Do you think this or do you think that? Both of which are extreme positions. Well, I kind of think a little bit of... Mealy-mouthed response follows. The politician is taking the Via Medea, the middle way. The problem in our society now, as the devolving of politics has happened, what you're seeing and what you're so frustrated at is that the Via Medea does not work when both sides are dogmatic in their views. I mean, imagine what a compromise would actually look like in Washington, D.C. Who would be happy with that? Would any of you be happy with that? I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Is the Via Medea? A peaceable solution for you? Would you be happy giving in this or losing that? Absolutely not. When both sides are dogmatic in their approach, the via media does not work. It fails. It only serves to make people more upset. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to be condemned to die. And we're going to see a crowd of people dogmatic in their approach of what should happen, and we're going to see a politician, Pontius Pilate, trying to stand in the middle, and he's trying to find the Via Medea, the middle way, a third way, if you will, and try as he might. When it comes to Jesus, it just does not work. Look at our passage this morning, Matthew 27, 11 to 26. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered Pilate, uh, when they had gathered Pilate said to them, "Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ?" For he knew that it was out of envy they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, "Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream." Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to, said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Heavenly Father, as we consider the word that is before us, I pray that you would give us understanding and give us wisdom. Father, your word is not always obvious to us. Sometimes we are blind to see it, so I pray that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to obey what you have revealed to us in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get closer to the end of Matthew's gospel... What we should expect is that he's going to be weaving together the story that he's told for us already. All the open-ended allusions that he's made, all the loose ends and parts of the storyline that he hasn't finished up, he's going to be tying together at the end. We believe that the Word is inerrant and infallible. It's divinely inspired. And so, as such, we would expect that the biblical writers are authors of books And they are storytellers par excellence, meaning that all of the things that we find intriguing about storytelling, storylines that are opened up and neat conclusions and ways that they wrap up the story are going to be true here in the gospel. And so as we get closer to the end, what I want to do is remind you of things that Matthew has already told us throughout his gospel that help us to see what he's doing here at the end and this clever narrative that he's actually weaving together to make a point for us. Now, Over the last few Sundays, we've seen numerous trials that have taken place. We saw the trial of Jesus. He's being accused by by, uh, Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin, and he is innocent of all charges. He is sitting there not responding to a single charge, we hear, and he is innocent of all charges. And then we also saw the trial of of Simon Peter. He, He is being accused by people outside the courtyard, and there he denies even knowing Jesus three times. Last week we saw the accusation, the trial, if you will, of Judas Iscariot. He's being tried by his own conscience. He can't get over the fact that he has tried to hand over an innocent man. And he's taking money for it, money that he no longer feels he can put in his pocket, and so he scatters them amongst the priesthood there in the temple. He says, I can't take the blood of Jesus. And so here is the priest who received the coins, and they realize the money has Jesus' blood on it, his innocent blood on it. They can't really put that in the coffers of the temple either. And so they try to get rid of the blood that's on their hands, and they seek to basically bury it in a field. They buy a field where they can bury strangers as they travel into town. They can't handle the blood guilt of killing the innocent Messiah. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, people keep trying to pass the buck one after another. Well, today, the verdict of guilt is given. It's placed on a group of people. But we've seen throughout this whole thing, Actually, they've all got blood on their hands, and they can't get rid of it. And if you notice, actually in the story, the only one that's not on trial is Jesus. You realize that? He's the only one that hasn't said a word throughout this whole thing. He's been innocent of all charges throughout the entire narrative. The only one not on trial is him. Everyone else who seeks to rid themselves of the guilt of Christ can't stand it. Their conscience won't bear it. Even as we see in today's passage, even Pontius Pilate cannot take it. We've also seen throughout this gospel that people who are currently in leadership over the nation of Israel, many who are responsible for the teaching, but then other people who are responsible for, lead, for following their teaching, are going to be ousted from the kingdom of heaven. We've seen this as far back towards the beginning of Matthew and Matthew chapter 8. That the people who are responsible for leading the nation of Israel and the people who are responsible for following, they're all going to be ousted from the kingdom of heaven. They're not going to be given the kingdom of heaven. If you remember, instead, there's going to be a combination of Jews and Gentiles who are going to be welcomed into the kingdom. So it's going to be turned upside down when the kingdom actually comes in Jesus. Remember Matthew 8, 11 to 12. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's a whole host of people who assume that they are going to be in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus says, you're actually not going to be. And there's a whole bunch of people that you're thinking are not going to be that are going to be. People coming from East and West, Gentile territories. And then he explains the reason for the switch. He says this in, in Matthew 21, 42 and 43. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, attention in this, 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Why is the switch going to happen? It's because the people that are welcomed into it actually receive the cornerstone, Jesus. They profess faith in Him. They believe in Him. And that's going to be an amalgamation of Jews and Gentiles that profess faith in Christ. And then there's a whole host of people that are going to reject the cornerstone that are going to be ousted from the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the kingdom of Israel. He's saying, you're going to be thrown out into hell precisely because of your rejection of me. And so he pronounces judgment on them in Matthew 23, just a couple chapters later. Starting in verse 34, he says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill. This is future. Some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you... "...may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon whom?" this generation. So Jesus says, all of this you you're, you're going to because you persecute me, because you persecute the people that I will send, namely the apostles and people that testify to who Jesus is, because you persecute all of them, all of the destruction, all of the judgment from all the persecution in the Old Testament is coming upon this generation. He goes on to tell them in the very next chapter, just a few chapters, a few verses later, that it's going to be the destruction of the temple that will eventually come about in 70 A.D. That's going to be the culmination of this. He says that temple is going to be destroyed in this very generation. Meaning the generation of leaders that are currently leading and the ones that will take over just after them, their children, in other words, are going to be the recipients of God's judgment. And the pinnacle of that judgment is going to be seen when brick by brick, that temple that you cling to is torn down. That temple represents the Jews' kingdom, as it were, their claim to fame, their relationship with God. That's where they meet God. That's where they sacrifice to Him. That's where they have all the communion with God. It's the thing that makes Jerusalem a spectacle. It's the thing that makes it a kingdom. And that's the very thing that's going to be torn down. The temple that they serve in It marks their identity as the people of God. So what happens when it collapses? So does their identity as the people of God. In our text, what we're going to see, and what we do see, is that the very statement that they make around Jesus to send Him to the cross is the very thing that seals their destruction as a Jewish kingdom. So Jesus is here standing before Pilate. Pilate's the governor of the area. He's the ruler of the area. It's another word for it. He is the ruler of area. And and his jurisdiction is Judea and Samaria. Judea is the area that Jerusalem is in. Samaria is just north of that. Galilee is not included in Pilate's jurisdiction. And so in some of the other Gospels, we see that Pilate actually tries to shift the responsibility of Jesus off on Herod. And Herod sends him right back because he doesn't want the responsibility either. He's under Herod's jurisdiction, but Pilate is the one that actually has to end up making the decision. Matthew just truncates all that. He just makes everything shorter and brings it here before us. Um, And so here is Pilate standing in authority. Over Jesus, or supposed authority over Jesus. And in throughout this passage, we're presented with several ironies. Five, if I count them correctly, that we see throughout this passage. And this is the first one here. Pilate is listed as the ruler. Supposedly, he is the ruler of the Jews, those in Judea and Samaria. Literally, he is the king of the Jews. And here he stands before Jesus, who has been identified to him as the king of the Jews. And so he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Now this is twice now that Jesus does not respond to false accusations. You notice that? Everything that the the chief priests charge him with, he doesn't respond to. But when he's asked about his nature, he tells them truthfully. He told the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and now he tells Caiaphas exactly who he is. He says, I have said so. Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? He says, You have said so. Now, you may think Pilate would be threatened by this because he is the king of the Jews, and he's looking at a guy who says he is the king of the Jews. Surely that would make him feel threatened. But John tells us something a little bit different in 1836-37, to isn't really threatened by Jesus, it doesn't seem, at least by his claim to a kingdom. In all likelihood, Pilate probably thinks Jesus is crazy. Let's be honest. Here's a guy who is from a virtually peasant background who is claiming to be king, but his kingdom is from another planet. Would you take him seriously? Probably not. Here is a secular guy standing in front of him who is the king of the Jews, supposedly, standing before the person who is actually the king of the Jews and whose kingdom is actually not of this world, but whose kingdom will upend all the other kingdoms, saying it's not of this world. He probably thinks he's crazy. But, needless to say, he doesn't respond to any of the false accusations that the chief priests bring to him. And Pilate is not used to that, obviously, because in Matthew even comments that he found this to be remarkable. The fact that Jesus would not seek to defend himself. He's remarkably calm under the pressure. And so Pilate wants nothing to do with this charge uh, to Jesus. He wants nothing to do with Jesus' death. He's questioned him, but he has really nothing to charge him with. And he knows that. And he also has his suspicions as to why the chief priests actually brought him, him to them in the first place. And why is that? We see in verse 18... Because he suspected they're envious of him. He's got quite a following, and they're pretty envious. And so he suspects that's mainly the reason. But as we'll see, Matthew is going to use the retelling of these very public conversations that Pilate has with the crowd to make a point to us. And this is what we want to hone in on is that Matthew is demonstrating these conversations between Pilate and the rest of the crowd, the chief priest and all the crowd that's around outside of his doorstep, to make a very important point in this passage. And the first thing that we're going to see in this drama is that Jesus' condemnation actually brings freedom. Jesus' condemnation brings freedom. There is a custom that apparently has developed all around This holiday, this feast of the Passover, where Pilate is used to releasing for them a prisoner. Someone who is condemned already to die. And presumably, they already had explained that they wanted Barabbas. Most likely, the crowd that's gathered around outside of Pilate's house may not, some of them, don't have any idea who Jesus is and what's been going on with the Sanhedrin. Some of them are just are there outside of Pilate's house because they want to ensure which prisoner is released when Pilate releases the prisoner. So Pilate's obviously gotten word that Barabbas is a crowd favorite, and we know that because he brings to them Barabbas, who is one of the people that has the name's been floated out there, presumably. And then he also brings Jesus, who is called Christ. Now most likely the crowd that's gathered around the house is there because they want Barabbas released. Now, that brings us to the second irony in the passage. Why does Matthew tell us about Barabbas? And what is he telling us about Barabbas? Well, not only is he a prisoner, but look in the text. He's not just a prisoner. What is he called? A notorious prisoner. Meaning he has a reputation... He has, uh, uh, everybody in the crowd, in other words, knows exactly why Barabbas is there. He's a man of ill repute. Everyone knows what he did, as opposed to the man who just stood trial, which maybe only half the crowd actually knows what he's accused of, but they're agreeing that he deserves death even though he hasn't done anything. So here you have a notorious criminal versus a criminal who's not really a criminal. They want the not really criminal dead, and the notorious criminal they want set free. But the notoriety about this Barabbas character, it actually builds in the rest of the Gospels. What else do we know about Barabbas? Do you know what Barabbas was notorious for? Insurrection. The very crime that they're accusing Jesus of, that he's innocent of, Barabbas is guilty of. You see the irony there? We want Jesus killed because of insurrection. We want that man freed because of insurrection. What a reversal. Barabbas being guilty and Jesus being innocent. Now Mark and Luke actually tell us a little bit broader picture of Barabbas. It says in Mark fifteen seven, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection there was a man called Barabbas. Luke 23, 18 and 19. But they all cried together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So Barabbas is guilty of starting an insurrection for committing murder in the insurrection. And there is a cohort around him of robbers who basically conceived of this plot together and killed someone in the process. Likely a Gentile, probably someone in the Roman military. But needless to say, they got together, they started the insurrection, and they killed him. Now, it's ironic that Barabbas would rightly be accused of the very crime that Jesus is falsely accused of. And yet, the people revere Barabbas as a hero in, in, in his attempt to overthrow Rome. On the other hand, Jesus, who actually, with his kingdom, is going to upend Rome and every other government, they want to kill. Matthew also tells us that Barabbas is one among the rebels in prison. These are Barabbas' fellow insurrectionists. Jesus, incidentally, is going to be crucified between two of them. they are going to be one on his left, and one on his right. Jesus is right in the middle. What then position does Jesus hold as one who is quite literally taking Barabbas' place as an insurrectionist? Pilate has no desire to put Jesus to death for a couple of reasons. One is, as we've seen, he has no fault. He can't find anything to charge him with. Another reason that he doesn't want to Bring a charge against him is the second irony that we see, or the third irony, I guess, in this passage. And it happens in verses 19 and 20. While he's sitting there in judgment over Jesus, his wife sends him a text. It says this, Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. But then look at what happens in the next verse, in verse 20. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. They're saying two different things, right? The chief priests are saying something completely different than Pilate's wife. Now, Matthew wants us to make sure we understand that the irony is that a Gentile woman who has nothing to do with the trial, she's not even present, understands all too well that you should have nothing to do with him, and that Jesus is righteous. And how does she come upon this knowledge? By God himself, in a dream. He has spoken to a Gentile woman who is not even at the trial in a dream and given her a word that is unbelievably, unremarked, undeniably true. He's righteous, and you should have nothing to do with him. While the chief priests, on the other hand, who are supposed to commune with God, who are supposed to have His Word and be a priesthood to the nations, have no idea that this is the Messiah standing in front of them. Isn't that strange? But remember, this is a theme running through Matthew. We saw many chapters before that many are going to come from the East and the West and are going to be included in the people of God. Gentiles, Jews in faraway lands... Jews that are not in Jerusalem are going, to be, are going to come from east and west and gather around the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are going to be included in the family of God. And many who are supposedly in the kingdom, like the chief priests, don't ever hear from God because they're not His children. They're going to be thrown into outer darkness because they don't recognize Jesus the Messiah. We actually see this happen time and again. Matthew 9. Jesus is sitting around the table with Gentiles and with tax collectors that are there at the table. And the chief priests are wondering, are you doing that? Are you gathered around sinners and tax collectors while the religious authorities are questioning him? The Jews reject him and the Canaanite woman who has a demon-possessed daughter asks for crumbs that fall from the table. And Jesus remarks that he's never seen such faith in all the land. We've seen this time and time and time again, and here, last of all, we see Pilate's own wife understands who Jesus is, and the chief priests have no clue. There's an exchange happening here, whereby Jesus stands condemned, and the guilty go free. Obviously, it's seen in Barabbas, but not, also, not only with Barabbas, also with many Gentiles, sinners, tax collectors, they're going free of sin. They're being released of their debt to the Lord, while those who assume they have no debt are made guilty. Which brings us to the second thing. Obviously, Jesus' condemnation brings freedom, but Jesus' condemnation also brings condemnation. It, this is a tough thing to hold in tension. Jesus' coming, his death, his burial, his resurrection, it brings freedom. That's the reason we're here. That's the reason we're singing. That's the reason we pray and read Scripture. It brings freedom to us. It, it also brings condemnation. And we need to hold those two things in tension. The, the crowd is responding to the persuasion of the chief priest. It's part of the reason we know that some of the crowd wasn't there to begin with. They're being persuaded by the chief priest. And a whole other crowd that brought Jesus in from Caiaphas' courtyard, They're persuaded that Barabbas needs to be set free, that Jesus needs to be crucified. He needs to be destroyed. And of course, Pilate recognizes that he's done nothing wrong. He couldn't possibly justify crucifixion, but the crowd persists. So Pilate has a decision to make. Well, one, he could refuse. He has the authority to refuse crucifixion. You realize, of course, that the Jews have no authority to crucify someone. They want Jesus dead, but they have no authority to actually put him to death. And so when they bring him to Pilate, as we've gone over the last couple of weeks, they're doing so so that Pilate, uniquely, because he has the authority, can authorize crucifixion. Now, to do something like this would obviously take a lot of courage. It's going to take him resisting the crowd that's gathered outside his house. They're shouting, and they're persistent that Jesus is to be crucified. Second choice that he has, he could give in the demands of the crowd. But what's interesting is what Pilate actually does. He gives into the crowd while trying to find the Via Medea, while trying to find the Middle Way. How is he going to do it? He's going to give the crowd what they want, but he's going to try to wash his hands of the blood in front of them, a physical sign that he has nothing to do, that his conscience has to be satisfied. He cannot deal with the blood guilt of Jesus, and so he tries to pass it on and publicly denounce his own action. Now, this is something of an ironic twist, because it is in complete disagreement his middle way is with what his wife actually told him in her text. She said, have nothing to do with this man, and that he's righteous. And what does Pilate do in this passage? Not only does he wash his hands, but Matthew makes sure we understand in verse six, 26 that Pilate is the one that delivers him over to be crucified. He tries to find the middle way appease the crowd, appease his own conscience, but he can't because he actually has to deliver him over and be crucified. What's the problem? It's unjust. The only way he can condemn this innocent man is to act unjustly. So Pilate attempts to make this physical display of his innocence by washing his physical hands. The problem is, as king of the Jews, as the physical king of the Jews, he cannot cleanse his spiritual hands. His spiritual hands actually have the blood on them. His spiritual hands stem from unbelief, from cowardice. From injustice, the very thing that Christ is coming to install. Now, many in Christianity don't know what to do with Pilate. The Coptic Church uh, has actually made him a saint, because what they read in Matthew and the rest of the Gospels is that he is actually denying any guilt and recognizes Jesus as innocent. I, I don't think that stands for two reasons: one, making anyone a saint—that's problematic. But two, Pilate, the Bible just will not let you get away with that. Some people don't even know what to do with Judas, because Judas exhibits some measure of guilt. What do we do with Pilate and Judas? I don't want to be soft on either one of them. Jesus tells us that Judas was a son of hell in John 17, 12. And we have every reason to believe that that's exactly what he was. Pilate spearheads a miscarriage of justice, That sees an innocent man condemned to crucifixion because he's afraid of the repercussions of the crowd. Peter is going to preach in a sermon in Acts 4 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pilate, uh, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. He holds them all guilty. All of them. Pilate, Herod, Gentiles, Israel, all of them are guilty of a conspiracy against the Holy Servant of God, Jesus Christ. So Pilate's guilt cannot be washed clean, because he's not the king of that, like Jesus is. The blood guilt from Jesus has been passed from Judas to the chief priests to Pilate, and all of them are guilty. None of them can wash their hands enough But however, the buck does eventually stop. And in verse 25, it stops with what Matthew refers to as the people. The people, the Jews, a whole group of them. The people are not the same as the crowd that are hailing him. Remember, there's a crowd that that precedes, that lays their cloaks on the ground and the palms on the ground that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. It's a totally different crowd. That crowd's from Galilee. They're following him, they're rejoicing in Jesus the King. The crowd that's gathered around Pilate's doorstep is a proud of jerusalemites people that are there to make sure that barabbas the insurrectionist gets released nevertheless the people cry out that word of condemnation his blood be on us and our children and herein lies the fifth and final irony in this passage this statement is far more prophetic than they realize jesus has told them and anyone who would listen that the temple is coming down in this generation in the days of the adults that are leading in the days of their children, it's going to come down to the ground. The temple is going to come down as a judgment from God for rejecting Jesus the Messiah. And Jesus tells them as much in Matthew 24. He tells them that that's going to happen. And the people yell this out, most likely thinking, nothing's ever going to become of it. His blood be on us and be on our children. Nothing is ever going to become of it. And yet Jerusalem is going to be torn down. And many times, over and over in their own writings, they're going to ask the question, where is God? And the answer is uncomfortable, but true. He's right there. This is the blood of Christ that's on your hands, and you're guilty of it. Now, this is where the rub lies, though. In our culture today, we desperately want a third way when it comes to Jesus. We desperately want a third way. Ask any religion out there, what do you do with Jesus? They all have an answer. And virtually none of them are he was a lunatic. Yet that's what Pilate is faced with. This guy's a lunatic. Almost no one explains Jesus away as a lunatic today. Do you realize that? Almost everyone wants to change who he is. You ask Muslims, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons. It's all just a little bit different, but they change Jesus entirely. Most commonly, it's it's rampant out there to find that Jesus was a good moral man who extended to us some moral teaching, that if we would adhere to those moral teachings, we would be much better off. Most everyone, secular media included, everyone, the worst people that you can think of in society, most of them read the Sermon on the Mount and go, now those are words to live by. It's a shame of what we do to Jesus. We change him. We want that third way because, honestly, the truth is very uncomfortable. Jesus did come to set some people free. He also came to condemn a whole lot of people. There is no third way. Jesus is presenting himself before you in this manner as a humble servant because that's going to accomplish exactly the kingdom he came to get. He's going to die for his people and he's going to save them from sin. But confront the world, confront yourself with that kind of Jesus, and it becomes really uncomfortable. Because what is Jesus actually saying? He's saying that you're guilty of sin. That's uncomfortable. No one wants to hear that. We abandon it in our pulpits, and what we preach instead is good moralism. Here's ten ways to a better marriage. Here's ten ways to live a prosperous life. And what we've exchanged is the teaching of Scripture for psychology. And people are enthralled by it. It packs the pews from front to back. Everyone wants to hear good moral psychology. That's not what Jesus is presenting. That's a third way. And you can't get away with a third way. It's binary. It's black or white. It's one or zero. Are you in or are you out? Either you are a sinner and your desire is to have Jesus pay the price for your sin. Or you are a sinner who's going to pay the price yourself. It's binary. It's a one or a zero. Which is it going to be? Every single one of us is going to face God on Judgment Day and give an account. Jesus says for every careless word. Is that something you want to do? It's not something I want to do. I can tell you that right now. As someone who for my whole life I've stood up and taught... That's certainly not something that I want to do. We're going to give an account for every single work. How do we want to give that account? Is your account going to be I can face the punishment or is it going to be Christ faced the punishment for me? That's your choice. That's what's presented before you. That is an uncomfortable message. But then for those of us who say, Christ faced it for us. I trust that Christ has faced it for me. Why do we wallow in self-pity? Why do we wallow in guilt and shame over our sin? Your sin is not further condemnation on you. Jesus is literally taking your place on the cross. It's Barabbas' place, but it's yours and mine too. He is literally taking your place on the cross. Is there any sin of yours that was not in Christ's future when he died? All of it was. So you can rest assured, he knew it all. That's the reason he went to the cross. That's the reason he had to die. That's the reason he had to suffer. He there had to absorb the wrath of God that was stored up for you and for me. He there had to die on the cross for you. So then why do we wallow in self-pity? In self-loathing? In shame? Why is it that your sin doesn't make you realize, Oh my goodness, He died for that too. That sin was also up on the cross Why does it not make us more enamored by who Christ is? Why does it instead point the mirror back to ourselves and go, yeah, that's the reason God could never possibly love me? It's lies. It's lies masquerading as self-deprecation because it tells you, hey, you've outrun God's grace, but it's not true. What's true is that That sin was also placed on Christ's shoulders. So instead of making you look in the mirror at yourself, it should make you look at Christ, who is magnificent, whose death for you is something you could never have paid. It should lead you to praise. It should influence our worship together as a church body. question is, what is it? What difference does it actually make to you? Matthew is presenting you one or the other. He either stood in your place, or he condemns you. Which is it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we wrestle so hard with that question. And yet we entrust to you the care of our souls and we ask that you would convince us of the truth. I don't know what everyone's dealing with in this room. You do. I pray you would speak to each one individually. Those that are sit in a place of unbelief. Help them to see their own sin. As they give an account for it, I pray that they would think about that day where they will stand before you to give an account. And I pray even now they would trust Christ. I pray, Father, for those who are wallowing in shame and self-pity, that you would wake them up and humble them truly to understand the magnitude of what Christ has done and that their sin would further convince them of their need for Christ, that it would put all of us in a position of humility, desiring to have Christ as our substitute instead. Pray this in Jesus' name.